0: This final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now, they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out Your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them Yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them Yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for You. Father, we love You. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we talk about faith, and you say you have faith, um, I, I, I always wonder, is my faith the kind of faith that could actually survive a real trial? You know, we live really comfortable and really safe lives. So how do we know if our faith is strong enough to survive even in the face of death? Because, you know, there's, there's something about that sort of faith that... that I want to have that kind of faith. And it's really hard to know if you do or not. For us, at least, it's hard to know. But but there are plenty of places around the world where being a Christian still carries the death penalty. All throughout much of Africa and Asia, if it's found out that you are a Christian, you face life in prison or execution. And yet, in those places, men and women and sometimes even children go to their death rather than renounce their faith. Even when offered the opportunity to denounce their Christian faith and live, they choose death. Their faith is that strong. And i got to tell you, I don't actually know if mine is quite that strong. I hope it is, but I don't know. It's utterly astonishing that so many people in so many places around the world would believe so firmly in the gospel, in Jesus, that they are literally willing to die for it. And it makes me wonder if my faith is quite as strong as that. I'm going to read to you, uh, it's it's all of chapter 11 of Hebrews, so it's the whole chapter. It's a lot of the Bible all at once, so buckle up. But it's okay. There's nothing wrong with hearing lots of scripture all in one go. It just builds character. So Hebrews 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed To be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his life was nearing its end, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They they were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them, received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us. So the only together with us would they be made perfect. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So living a a faithful life is not an easy thing, and and the author of Hebrews knows this, and so he gives this, this these examples of Faithful men and women throughout the history of Israel as an encouragement, and he even gets to this bit at the end about people being tortured and, and sawn into and run off into the wilderness. and that's a reference to uh, the Book of Maccabees, from which we get the, the celebration, the story of Hanukkah. But, but the story goes that after Alexander the Great's empire was divided up amongst his generals, the Seleucid Empire, which ruled over Israel, was especially cruel and oppressive to the Israelites quite literally f- forcing them to either renounce their faith, desecrate their temple, or be killed. And so they rose up in rebellion and established their own independence after a very bloody war. But that's what he's referencing is all these Jewish martyrs who went to their deaths willingly rather than uh, denounce their God or defile their temple. And those, that happened maybe a century and a half before the life of Jesus. So this is very fresh in their memory. They're familiar with the idea of martyrdom and sacrifice. And he's reminding them that their ancestors had the kind of faith that could stand up to death. But he also has this really interesting bit right here in verse 3. Right? By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Faith is how they understand what God has done. Faith is how they understand how everything was made. We have this really odd dichotomy in the modern world where we separate faith and knowledge as if they're two totally different things. And that's just not how it works. That idea that, that uh, knowledge is objective, it's obtained through science and study, and faith is something totally subjective, you can trace that back to the Enlightenment in the 18th century, but even they didn't come up with that idea. That whole concept that science is purely objective nothing to do with science it has to do with an ancient philosophy called epicureanism it dates back well before the time of christ it was around in paul's day and it separates out things like faith from objective knowledge but here's the reality it doesn't work that way even atheists have faith because you cannot objectively prove that god does not exist to be an atheist you have to have faith and if you pay close attention when you hear people with purely secular beliefs talking, you will hear them speaking in language of faith. They'll say things like, I believe in science. They've got faith. They've just put it in something else. Faith is an integral part of knowledge. You cannot know things if you do not have faith in things. The whole idea that, that faith is just a guess or that it's just a blind trust, it's not true. It's not true. Faith is knowledge. People misunderstand it. They think it's belief based on nothing. They assume it's somewhat foolish or even outdated, or or maybe that it's just something based on emotions and feelings, but that's not what faith is. Faith is a certainty based on knowledge. Our knowledge is based on experience. We know God. We know truth. And that's what our faith is based on. My daughter has faith in me, right? She knows that I want good things for her. She believes I'll feed her when she's hungry. She believes that I will care for her when she's sick. And that faith is based solely on her relationship with me. Because she had faith I would do those things before I'd ever done them, right? Before she got sick for the first time, she had faith that I would care for her when she was sick. Based solely on the fact that she knew me. that's how faith works we know God through God we know truth and so we can have certainty as a result of faith so having established that he then goes on to what I call the hall of faith right like the hall of fame but for the bible no one laughs at that joke I love it it's great So he lists all the great heroes of the faith and all the defining moments of their lives, the things that they are most remembered for. And each of these people has notable achievements. But what the author is clear about is that their achievements and the reason they are remembered is not because of their courage, it's not because of their strength or their talent or their education or their birthright or their race, their nationality, their intelligence, their training. No, it's only because of their faith. That's it. That's the important thing. On Palm Sunday in 2017, terrorists detonated two bombs in a pair of historic Coptic churches in Egypt. Fifty people were killed. A little over a hundred were injured. And just a a few hours after that, one of the priests stood up in front of a congregation gathered in the bombed-out remnants of his church and delivered a sermon. And like all good sermons, it had three points. Notice none of mine do. I'm a terrible preacher. And his sermon was titled, A Message to Those Who Kill Us. And his three points were, thank you, we love you, and we're praying for you. He said, thank you because they gave the dead the honor to die as Christ died, because they shortened the victim's journey to their heavenly home, and because they allowed those Christians to fulfill Christ's words in Luke chapter 10, verse 3, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And because their actions had made people more mindful of their eternal destiny. Because on that day, for that sermon, the church was overflowing with people who did not ordinarily attend. He said, we love you because even murderers and thieves love those who love them. But only followers of Christ are commanded to love their enemies. And finally, he said, we're praying for you because he reasoned that if a terrorist could taste the love of God even one time, it would drive the hatred from his heart. Now I have to ask you, if someone detonated a bomb in this church on Palm Sunday, if people you know and loved were killed, could you stand up a few hours later and say those words? Because I'm not at all sure that I could. That is faith. You may not realize this, but but when Hitler rose to power in Germany, most of the nation's churches actually rallied behind him. In fact, I had a, a professor in seminary who was born in Germany, raised in Germany, and when he came to the U.S., he was made really uncomfortable by the flags in our churches because in Germany, the only time when they had flags in their churches was under the Nazi regime because it was a symbol that the church was behind them. Obviously, this is a different thing, but... That goes to show you how tied up so many of their churches had become with a force of incredible evil. It's only a minority of the nation's Christians had the faith to stand up to that evil. The most well-known of them is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may have read his biography. You've heard the story. But he was part of a very small minority of Christian leaders who remained vocally and vehemently opposed to the Nazi regime. In fact, at one point, he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, which makes him way cooler than I could ever be. His faith led him to oppose Hitler and his regime, even when he was arrested, even when he was sentenced to death. He never let up. In the first six months of 2022, Twenty-five Iranian Christians were given long-term prison sentences. Their only crime is that they were members of small house churches. They weren't on the streets trying to convert other Muslims to Christianity. They weren't publicly proclaiming the gospel. They were meeting quietly in homes to read and pray. To date, not one of them has recanted their faith, even though they will likely be in prison the rest of their lives if they are not executed. That is faith an utter certainty that the gospel is true. A certainty that is so strong and so unshakable that nothing in this life can change your mind. Nothing can scare you off from it. Abraham's example in this story is, is I think, very powerful. Of all the people listed, maybe his story is the most powerful because he's the one who is promised that his descendants will outnumber the stars and he's told specifically Isaac is the one through whom you're going to have all those descendants and then God commands him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice and amazingly he is prepared to do exactly that he is prepared to lose his one and only son the son that God himself promised to him this is his miracle child Because he has faith that somehow God will bring his son back to him. He has faith that somehow with this God, death does not mean what it used to mean. The one similarity between all of the people who are listed in this chapter is that each and every one of them has a moment in their life when God leads them right up to the edge of a cliff and asks them to jump. they all have that moment when they are looking out into the void and God says, it's time to jump. And they don't know where they're going to land. This is so often how God works in all of our lives. He'll take us by the hand and he'll guide us gently right up to the crisis point. And then he asks us to take a leap of faith. And that's the moment when our faith or lack thereof is put to the test. When I was about nine years old, we took a trip to the Grand Canyon. And so we pulled up and, and we were going to join the tour group, you know. And, and as the tour guide is going over the safety part of the, of the presentation, right, explaining not to get too close to the edge, talking about how many people die every year from falling over the edge into the Grand Canyon, um, I saw a really cool lizard, and you know a 9-year-old boy sees a really cool lizard he chases the lizard right and that thing was fast you know i'd get right up to it and i'd be this close to grabbing it and it would just dart away always running towards the canyon and eventually it went over the edge of the canyon and you might think for seems like a smart guy surely he stopped or you might think maybe he was smart enough to lie down flat on his stomach and reach over the edge with one arm at least so he's not going to fall in. But no, I, I, uh, I sat down on the edge of the candy with my legs hanging over the edge and reached down between them, leaning over like this to try and grab that lizard. And just as I started to tip over and slide off the edge of the cliff, a hand grabbed the back of my clothes and jerked me up. And I looked behind me and there's my dad. (laughs) As mad as I've ever seen him. (laughs) But you know, it it occurs to me in all the times I've told that story over the years because it's a great sermon illustration for all kinds of things, right? (laughs) But you know, it occurs to me I don't know that I would have ever done that. I don't know that I ever would have gotten that close to the edge of the canyon, felt felt comfortable doing that if I wasn't dead certain that my dad was watching me. If I didn't know from all of my experience with him up to that point that we were out in public, dad was watching me, and he would make sure nothing bad happened to me. And I know that's kind of naive, right? Because, of course, I could very well have fallen in. But the point remains, I had faith that he was watching me and I was willing to do something I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Because I knew he was there. And I knew he was watching over me. You know, it's always easy to be faithful, to to live a, a godly life when everything is going right when everything's easy. But what about when things go wrong? Is your faith strong enough to stand in the face of uncertainty? Can you jump when God tells you to jump? Even if you don't know where you're going to land. Faith requires submission to God. A total trust in God. And in fact, from the very beginning, this has been a problem. The story of Adam and Eve is that they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they wanted to be like God, right? That's the temptation. If you eat from that tree, you can be like him, and then you don't need him. At the root of that story is a trust problem, an unwillingness to rely completely on God. And so long as we are unwilling to rely completely on God, so often our faith is going to fail to survive any kind of real test. And it's going to happen. And the, the good news is that when it happens, God does not abandon you. God does not cut you off and say, well, sorry, you failed, you're done. Now the good news is, is that this is exactly why Jesus died on the cross for us. His love for us, his care for us is so great that he became one of us, lived a human life, and then willingly submitted to torture and death and humiliation all for our sake, all while we were still sinners. Jesus actually has faith in us. He offers us a connection to God that is personal and intimate. And that is exactly the sort of thing that creates an unshakable faith in the Lord. Knowing God personally, in the same way that I knew my father, in the same way that my daughter knows me, that kind of knowledge, based in love and a personal connection, an actual relationship, And that connection, my friends, comes through prayer and scripture. The Psalms use the same imagery over and over again, and it's brought up back again in, in several of the prophets, this idea that the people who spend their time reading God's word and praying are like trees planted by a river, like these great big oak trees whose roots run so deep that even when the river dries up, they still reach the water underground. And no matter how bad the drought gets, they will not dry out. So they're well watered even when the surface is dry. That image pops up again and again and again because this is what happens when we immerse ourselves in God's word and when we spend our time in prayer. We're growing our roots deep. We're we're building that connection with our God that allows us to know him, not to just put blind trust in some vague figure up in the clouds, but to know the creator of the universe, to be certain he's there, even when it's not always obvious on the surface. That's how you develop the kind of faith that lets you jump off the cliff when God asks you to. That's why I've asked you to read the whole Bible with me this year, because I want you to develop a habit of actually reading Scripture daily. You don't have to read the whole thing every year from now on, but, but to have the habit of sitting down and reading it every day, to grow those roots deep, to strengthen that connection, so that you know God. You do it again and again. You respond to God's guidance in your life again and again and again. And as you do so, you draw closer and closer to Jesus. And you come to know him. Just like my daughter knows me, just like I knew my dad at the Grand Canyon. And suddenly, being outside your comfort zone doesn't seem all that scary. And suddenly, taking a leap of faith isn't quite as nerve-wracking as it used to be. Because you know that he's there. You know that he's watching you. And you know that he will catch you if you fall. And so before you know it, you'll be leaping out into thin air without thinking about it. Because you know that you'll land where God wants you to. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.